we, I, I forgot to mention that we're starting a new, new sermon series. And so I just wanted to share a little bit about the idea behind the, the Break Free sermon series. Essentially what we're doing here is we're taking a look at some of those ideas that we believe. Some of those things that we thought were true, um, but they're not really true. And we're going to be talking about, we're going to be hitting a lot of, lots of different ones um, over the course of this sermon series, taking a look at how these things can trap us. They can, they can keep us um, trapped, enslaved to, um, to a way of life that, uh, that is not... That is, that is a lot more like slavery than it is like freedom. And so um, we're, we, last week we took a look at the idea that um, a valley always means you've uh, made a wrong turn. And uh, this week um, we're going to be talking about conscience. And so uh, I just wanted to share a little bit about that. You can look forward to seeing how we take a look at something that you believe maybe you, maybe you thought was true and how um, we need to break free from that idea in order to, uh, to follow God more closely. So today we're going to be looking at conscience. Conscience is one of those areas um, where I think we have mixed feelings. We like it, but we don't like it. You know, we like it because, you know, we think that it helps us make good choices in life. Um, and we, we don't like it because, you know, as one writer put it, conscience is a mother-in-law whose visit never ends. <laughs> No offense to mothers and mothers-in-laws. I, I have a wonderful mother-in-law. Um, countless persons have gone on record recognizing conscience as, uh, as just the ultimate guide in life. People like Albert Einstein, George Washington, Gandhi, and perhaps one we respect most of all, the beloved Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> the, all, the, all these people are telling us, let your conscience be your guide. Even the Bible recognizes conscience as an important guide in our life. We've been told by so many, though, that conscience is the best guide and that we should always follow it. But this is one of those ideas that can be a trap. And as we'll see, it's a spot where we need to break free. So what are we talking about when we talk about conscience? Um, when we, when we, we often think of conscience as this guiding force in our lives. It tells us when we've done something good. It tells us when we're about to do something um, wrong. It alerts us um, to, to something that doesn't seem right. It can be very helpful in day-to-day life. But one thing we know for sure is that conscience isn't uh, foolproof. It's not a foolproof guide. One popular Christian writer, Larry Osborne, compares it to a thermostat. And I really like this illustration, um, the idea of thinking about conscience as a thermostat. You know, most of us have a thermostat in our house. And uh, let's say you've got this perfectly functional thermostat, and you set it to 78 um, to turn, turn on the AC when, uh, when it gets to be 78. Now, let's say 78 is pretty high. You begin to get hot. And so what do you do? Most of us turn down the thermostat, right? But what if you were to call up the, uh, the AC guy and say, you know what, there's something wrong with my thermostat. It's broken, and, uh, and I'm hot. And, uh, and, you say, and he says, well, you know, what's wrong? You know, explain to me what's wrong. And you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm hot. I'm hot. And, and he comes over and he sees that it's just working, it's working just fine, but it's set to 78, if you were to see that, he's going to say, you're ridiculous. The thermostat doesn't define hot or cold. You define hot or cold, and the thermostat merely responds 
to your settings. Just like a thermostat kicks in based on its pre-programmed settings, your conscience alerts you based on your moral code. Conscience doesn't alert you to God's sense of right and wrong. Conscience alerts you to your sense of right and wrong. And this is why it's not a reliable guide. It's not a reliable guide because your moral code can sometimes be off base. Computers are great. They, uh, they save us time. They help us to connect with people who we might not otherwise connect with. I, you know, I, I love computers. Um, but they're, they're really a great thing until, that is, they stop working. And then they're a horrible thing. One of the ways computers can break down is um, if you've installed some sort of program on your computer that has some bad code, some faulty programming. Well, just like the programming code of our computers can get corrupted, in the course of life, our moral code can get corrupted too. When our moral code is corrupted, it makes our conscience an unreliable guide. How does this happen? How is it that conscience can fail to serve the very basic purpose for which it's intended, for which it's designed? Today, I'd like to offer up a few reasons why your conscience may have some bad programming. You know, and as we do this, I really hope that uh, we'll also see some ways that we can prevent our conscience from getting some bad programming. The first reason your conscience may have given, may, may have some bad programming is because your mentors have give, may have given you some false ideas. Your mentors may have given you some false ideas. When I was a new Christian, um, I can remember going to this one Bible study uh, with, with uh, a friend of mine. And, uh, you know, I didn't know this friend well. I didn't know the people who were hosting it at all. I mean, I, don't, I, I went over to their house, and I, I can't really remember much from uh, that afternoon, um, except for this one thing that I'd kind of written down and saved. You know, this couple decided to share with us from a book um, that was talking about the significance of numbers in the Bible. And uh, not, not the book of Numbers, but, you know, actual um, numerals. And they shared how the number seven is, is a number that often stands for completeness in the Bible. And that's true. And, they should, you know, they talked about how 12, you know, often parallels the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's also true. But they went on to share the meaning of all these other numbers. They had a whole book of them. And these were the sort of things they would say. Five was the number of power and divine grace. There is nothing in the Bible to support that. <laughs> they, they went on. Eight, eight was supposed to relate to salvation and new birth. Thirteen, very interestingly, was supposed to be seen as an ill omen representing hostility. None of this can be backed up in the Bible. Thirteen. Where do you think they got that? They didn't get that from the Bible. They got that from their culture. An American, American culture, we think, that's, we think that is, you know, it signifies bad luck. They didn't get that from the Bible. This stuff was not in the Bible. They had all these spiritual meanings that they attributed to all sorts of numbers from 14 all the way up to 153 and beyond. Now that I know a little bit more about the Bible, I think this is ridiculous. First of all, why were they wasting precious time teaching me about something that was not even useful, it wasn't even true. Why were they wasting time when I could have been learning about how to live life as a new Christian or how to, uh, to get to know God better by reading the Bible for myself? This is how people like Harold Camping get started. 
They, they tell a bunch of unsuspecting people that these numbers have all sorts of significance. And if you add them and multiply them and do all these different things with the numbers, then you, all of a sudden you can predict when Jesus is going to come back. Which isn't true. And you know that if you read the Bible for yourself. You know, it's not even possible. Jesus says, no one knows the time or the place. Nobody. No one ever will. Until it happens. Fortunately, my friend who was older than I, you know, he was a little suspicious of the whole numbers thing, and I never got into it. One of the reasons we get some of these false ideas in our lives um, is because when we are um, new to our relationship with Jesus, um, we just soak up everything that our mentors tell us. You know, we're eager to learn, you know, these things, and so we just soak it up. We eat it all up, the good with the bad. Here's an important principle with mentors. Never let them take the place of Jesus in your life. First and foremost, Jesus is your mentor. Even if your mentor is a great Christian who is teaching you true things, you, you still need to view Jesus as your chief mentor. Even good mentors will, will tend to emphasize one thing, you know, that they're really passionate about at the expense of others. Our parents can also be a source of uh, false ideas. And Huckleberry Finn, uh, Huck, Huck Finn is this child who's, um, you know, traveling down the Mississippi, and he's stealing food in order to survive, and, um, and he, de he describes his theft at one point in the book. He says this, Mornings before daylight, I slipped into cornfields and borrowed a watermelon, a, a mushmelon, or a pumpkin, or some new corn, or things of that kind. Pap always said, it weren't no harm to borrow things if you was meaning to pay them back sometime. When we were kids, I love that quote because it just really, it's, it's an exaggeration of what we really do. Um, a lot of us do, all of us do um, at different points in our lives. When we were kids, our parents gave us a sense of right and wrong in the world. They taught us what's important and what's not, not important. They taught us their values. They probably passed down some mantras, things like uh, a penny saved is a penny earned. And because we were taught these things at an impressionable age, we just ate them up. Our parents' values became our values. But the problem is that the truisms of even great parents can sometimes um, be a source of false ideas. It's important to acknowledge that they weren't always right. They weren't perfect people. It's important to be discerning with the things that our parents and our mentors taught us. But I think it's even more important to be discerning of the, of the, the people we are listening to right now. Many people remember the scandal involving uh, Jim, and Timoth uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. There were these two evangelists who had risen to prominence. Um, they had this television show called the PTL Club, and uh, they were just really immensely popular. They had a viewership of over 12 million people. But in 1987, investigations began to bring all sorts of things to light. $92 million of contributions were missing, totally unaccounted for. Nobody knows where they are. Jim and Tammy Baker were making an outlandish $1.6 million in bonuses and salaries each year, and that's 1987. Jim's sexual misconduct was exposed. Tax evasion was exposed. The fact that the ministry was deeply in debt was exposed. Millions of viewers were shocked and dismayed. And many people look back and they wonder, how could they have been fooled? By the bakers. 
And I think we wonder, you know, how can we make sure we aren't being fooled right now by someone else? How do you know? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about people that it describes as false teachers. Here's what uh, Jesus says about false teachers. Oh, we got to clear it out there. Here's what Jesus says about false teachers. Watch out for false teachers. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So what is, what is fruit? Fruit is right living. John the Baptist used the metaphor of fruit to, tell, to teach his followers um, how to, that they should not just repent, but that they should show that they have repented by their actions. And he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he gives some examples of how to do that in their lives. One of the primary ways to evaluate a teacher is by looking at how they live. Does their life reflect good fruit, or do their actions betray the condition of their heart? In 1 Timothy, Paul gives a list of the qualifications that he thinks are important um, when considering elders. Now, the elder is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Now, uh, if we could go back to the first slide. The, yeah, that one. Um, one of the things I want you to notice here is that um, the only qualifications here that are skill-based are um, uh, essentially the, you know, being able to teach, you know, um, managing his own family, and, and maybe hospitality. Those are the only skill-based ones. The rest of them are about character. They're all character issues. If anyone who knew him would have evaluated Jim Baker's character, they would have looked at his mansions and his uh, loads of expensive cars, and his multiple, multiple vacation homes. And they would have said, you know what? I'm concerned that he has, I'm concerned that he has a little, you know, problem with this issue of the love of money. So this isn't, but this, this issue of right living, though, isn't the only metric we have. We also have the, the metric of uh, what they teach. Is so teaching faithful? In Titus, Paul says this, and he's talking about elders. I mean, uh, Paul, yeah, Paul says this. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage those by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Jim and Tammy Faye Baker um, were teaching people a prosperity gospel. They taught people that God wanted them to be rich, and that, that, was, that was why, you know, that's, that's, that's central to the salvation message for God, for God to make people wealthy. 
And if you read the Bible carefully, you can't take away that message. If you read the Bible carefully, you will see that there's, there's a different message and that um, this idea is not, it's not there. In fact, in a later book, Jim Baker recounts um, how he read all the way through the Bible for the first time while he was in prison. And he, this is what he writes. The more I studied the Bible, I had to admit that the prosperity message did not line up with the tenor of Scripture. Beware of false teachers. Evaluate their lifestyle. Evaluate their teaching. Not everyone out there is teaching the right things. Even people on Christian radio and Christian TV can be false teachers. Chances are that somewhere along the lines, you received some false ideas. And they may be still influencing you today. So one reason your conscience may have some bad programming is that you may have received some false ideas from some mentors. Another reason you should consider is that your conscience is dependent on your moral code, as we, as we mentioned earlier. And our moral code is influenced by our culture. Our moral code is influenced by our culture. Unfortunately, all of us, um, whether we want to or, or not, um, are influenced by our culture. Our culture tells us things like not to point at people and, or stare at people um, to talk, or to talk with your mouth full. It tells us things like this. But, but if you go to another culture, the rules may very well be different. Our, our culture also gives us a sense of what is right and wrong. Our culture tells us that it's okay to live together before marriage. And I think, you know, it's starting to tell us that it's even preferable to live together before you're married. And the idea is that, you know, from the people I've talked to, the idea is that once you live together, then you know better um, the sort of things that are going to bother you about the other person. And, uh, and then you'll know whether you want to commit. Our culture tells us that it's not, it's not okay um, to talk about faith with someone that you don't know very well. It's seen as trying to convert someone without a concern for who they really are, without a concern for their person, just a concern for getting a conversion. In some ways, I think talking about faith with anyone, except someone who agrees with you, has become taboo. Some of the things our, our culture teaches us are great, but others are not. They're not true. The problem is that cultural influences are based on popularity. And what is popular is not always right. And what is right is not always popular. Majority opinion is not a good judge of morality. Majority opinion can sometimes be profoundly misguided. The civil rights movement of the 60s taught us this, didn't it? I don't know anyone who would today come out and say racism is a good thing, segregation is a good thing. No! No one would say that today. We think it's ridiculous. But we can't let ourselves forget. Before the 60s, these were very popular ideas. All sorts of institutions and politicians went on record supporting these ideas. We look at the issue of abortion, and we can see how there's been a shift in public opinion, and more and more people are recognizing life inside the womb. And we pray that one day, like we do with the civil rights movement, we will look back and we'll say, what were we thinking? 
majority opinion can be profoundly misguided. The tough thing about the influence of the majority and the influence of our culture is that it's tough to stand up to it, isn't it? It's tough to pursue a moral code that conflicts with our culture because culture is like, is like a stream running down a mountain or a river running down a mountain, and you, it's like trying to swim against the, the current. The current's running this way, and you're trying to swim the other way, and it's just really tough. It's tough to hang out with friends who aren't Christians, who don't share your values, if all they want to do is get drunk. If all they want to do is talk about something inappropriate, if all they want to do is watch some movie that you you don't want to watch, if they want to gossip, 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 what do you do? What do you do? It can be very difficult to keep the opinions of the majority from dictating your own moral code. What you have to do is you have to buck the trend. You must refuse to compromise. And then what do you do? Then what, what do they do? Oh, man, do you think you're better than us? Come on. Are you judging us? Are you judging us? Come on, it's not a big deal. It's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's just one time. Come on, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. If you're in that situation, here's, here's just what I have found helpful to do. Because you kind of feel bad. You don't want to judge them, right? You want to say, hey, your deal is your deal, and I'm, I, I am choosing a different way. This is what I found helpful to do. Just start with no thanks. No thanks. And if they press you further, this is what I found helpful to say. You know, I've, I've made a commitment to God to not do that anymore. You know, that, that, way, that way they don't feel judged, you know, and, you want, and they get the sense, you know, you're not going to budge on this. They stop bothering you. And usually I find that if you, if you, if you say something to that effect, um, it sparks some interest and in faith. I think those things are attractive to people. See somebody who doesn't compromise on their values. If you don't buck the trend, then you are bending your moral code. And pretty soon you'll have a new one that leaves plenty of room for that sort of behavior. That's the way it works. Your conscience may have some bad programming because things like our culture and the people we hang out with, they influence our moral code. The third reason your conscience may have some bad programming is because our moral code tends to favor ourselves. Our moral code tends to favor ourselves. In psychology, there's this principle called the self-serving bias. I love this principle. Um, this is how it works. Let's say that you get a promotion. The self-serving bias says that you have a tendency to attribute that promotion to your own hard work or your, your own ingenuity. But if you were to get laid off, you have a tendency to attribute it to factors outside your control. Isn't that interesting how that works? I mean, think about this. I mean, I've done this. The principle could be summarized like this. When things go well, it's because of me. When things go poorly, it's because of them. Or, or it's because it's outside my control. It's outside my control. I can't do anything about it. We also have a self-serving bias when it comes to our moral code. Sometimes we think the sins that we struggle with are not a big deal. And the sins that other people struggle with, well, those are a big deal. How many times have you heard someone say this sort of thing? This, this sort of thing? I know, I know I swear. I swear. But man, I do not swear like that. Oh my gosh. Oh. I can't believe that. Can you have a mouth on that person? 
Why is it that the cutoff for what's okay always seems to fall conveniently below our own actions? Why is that? We need to recognize that Jesus has much higher standards of morality than we do. This was a trademark of his teaching. This this is from Matthew 5. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's a higher standard, isn't it? You have heard that our our ancestors were told you must not murder. But if you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Man, that's a, high, that's a much higher standard than the one, the one we're familiar with. His standards are higher than ours. Oof. It's not a nice thing to acknowledge, but our moral code tends to leave plenty of room for justifying our own actions. We have a tendency to be blind to our own faults. Others can see them, but we can't. We have a tendency to minimize our own faults. And these tendencies can leave us with a conscience that has totally been informed to pat us on the back. It keeps us feeling good about ourselves no matter the reality of the situation. Another reason your conscience may have some bad programming is because you may have run into some legalists. You may have run into some legalists. A friend told me recently that he was going to a church in the area, and uh, he had invited a friend to come visit. And uh, she didn't really want to come, but he just kept encouraging her, and, and uh, finally she, she came uh, to church. And upon her arrival at the church, someone mentioned to her that she was dressed inappropriately. She was wearing pants And the only acceptable thing for a woman to wear in church was a dress or skirt. The Bible does not say anything about dresses or skirts or pants or any of that. But somewhere along the lines, some woman in Pataskala got the impression that was a rule. This is an example of legalism. We have to define legalism because legalism is used to describe lots of different things. And this is how I'm going to define it. Legalism is adding to the commands of God. Legalism is not calling something wrong when God clearly calls it wrong. Here's some examples of legalism. Some Christians used to avoid things like dancing, going to the movies, and, and, and even card playing. And it's fine to avoid those things for yourself. But to say that they should be prohibited for others when God hasn't prohibited them in the Bible... That is legalism. Legalism is not setting up stricter boundaries for yourself. You know, Katie and I uh, don't like to watch rated R movies. Um, you know, we just had too many bad experiences. It's just, uh, it's not just the sexual stuff, it's the violence too. Um, so we, we, we've just come to feel like it's just really not helpful, helpful stuff for us. So we, we avoid rated R movies almost completely. Some people listen to Christian music. And this, you know, they, they found that listening to other types of music, you know, just really not helpful for them in their walk with God. There are good reasons for doing things like this. Jesus says the eye of the lamp 
the, the, the eye is the lamp of the body. If you keep putting dark things in front of your eyes, your whole body is going to be full of darkness. These practices are not legalism. Setting up stricter boundaries for yourself because you know what you struggle with, that is called godly wisdom. But now if we take, some, if we take something on which the Bible does not clearly speak, and we make our own practice the rule for others, then we've entered into legalism. Legalism is not being really passionate about doing the right thing. That's not legalism. Legalism is thinking that your enthusiasm to do the right thing makes you right with God. Legalism is thinking that your enthusiasm to do the right thing keeps, keeps you right with God. Here's how legalism begins. Let's say that before you came to Jesus, you were a football fanatic. You knew every person's name in the entire NCAA, and you watched every single game for like five different teams. You know, all of your money was being continually poured into memorabilia and, and tickets, and, and you know, all your time was just being devoted to football um, at the expense of other areas of your life. I have a disclaimer here. All characters appearing in this illustration are, pure, are fictitious. Any resemblance to persons real, uh, living or dead, is, is purely coincidental. Uh, so, so, so you're a football fanatic, and it's more, more than an entertainment thing. It's ruining your life. Then you become a Christian, and you realize that it's become an idol in your life. It's become, um, you know, something you've got to clean up. You continually struggled with it until you realized that it just, you just had to completely cut it out. You couldn't, you couldn't uh, do a little bit. So you sell all your stuff, and you refuse to watch any games. Everything is fine until one day your Christian buddy says, Hey, you want to come go watch the game? And you think, What? You watch football? Oh, my gosh. I can't believe that. It can be football, it can be secular music, it can be the way you dress, it can be all, be all sorts of things. This is totally a real dynamic in Christian community. This is how legalism starts. Legalism can, can cause our conscience to false alarm. You're about to go do something that's totally fine for Christians to do, but you start to feel guilty because you've run into some legalistic ideas. So your conscience can fail to alarm, but it can also false alarm, which makes, it, which makes it on its own an unreliable guide in life. Your conscience may have some misguided influences, but sometimes our conscience is just plain numb. Your conscience may have some bad programming because it may be numb. I was reading this one article um, where a reporter, he described, it, uh, described himself as talking with evil. And uh, he had interviewed a serial killer, a rapist, and a child molester. And he wanted to see how did they feel about their crimes while they were doing it. You know, how did they feel about it afterwards? He wanted to, to get a sense of that. Well, this is what he found. One of the guys said he felt guilty about what he had done and that he had felt um, really deep remorse about it. Another one also felt guilty. Um, but uh, he felt like he was a victim to his impulses. There's nothing he could do about it. The last one, the child molester, did not feel remorse at all. He felt like he was doing something that was totally okay. You see, sometimes that inner peace 
can be just a lie. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says this, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. He recognizes that conscience can be deceptive. Inner peace is not a perfect guide. Our conscience is not reliable because sometimes it can become numb. And when, you've, when, you've, when you ignore your conscience over and over again, it's going, you're just going to stop feeling it. The first time you did it, you felt pretty bad. You, know, you, felt, you felt this guilt. But then you just kept doing it. You kept ignoring it. And if we get in the habit of ignoring our conscience, the behavior becomes a normal part of our lives. I think one situation where we ignore our conscience are times when everyone else is doing it, and so we just go along. When doing the right thing means a lot of more time and money and effort, we have a tendency to ignore our conscience. We're trying to do the right thing in life, but sometimes it becomes inconvenient or embarrassing. It becomes very easy in those moments to stop trying. Now I'm about to list off um, some, idea, some areas where I think we've become numb. And uh, as I get ready to do this, I'm kind of realizing, you know, this is going to be a tough exercise. So uh, brace yourselves. Uh, but but we, we've, all, we've all done a few of these things. And I want to say to start off, uh, as I looked at the list, I've done all of them. So this is not about judging. This is about pursuing righteousness in our lives. Okay? Let's start with one that Christians do a lot. Telling people... We're going to pray for them. Oh, you feel that needle? It's going right into your heart, isn't it? Oh. No, we, we can sometimes tell people we're going to pray for them, knowing full well that we are not going to. This is being dishonest. If you know that it's your tendency to forget those prayer requests right after you, the, you finish the conversation, don't, don't keep telling them that you'll pray for them. Don't keep telling people that. Also, I will keep you in my prayers. This phrase implies multiple prayers. You have to pray for them at least twice in order for this comment to be true. <laughs> VCC, let's not be a church where it's the norm for people to, uh, to pretend like they're praying more often than they really are. Let's not be that. Here's, so, here's some alternatives. You can say, I will pray for you today. Or you can say, I will pray for you this week. Or you can say, you need way more prayer than I can offer you. <laughs> Don't say that one. <laughs> of course, we can always just say these things less frequently. Or only when we mean them. Let's not have a culture that encourages lying. Here's another one. Smuggling candy into movie theaters or a sports game. Oh, oh. Done that one. You're, you're, what you're doing is you're taking away from their profits at the concession stands. Part of the deal, and they make this very clear, is that you're not allowed to bring your own food. <laughs> It, it, I agree. I agree. That, but it's part of the deal. And so, and so we feel like it's not a big deal, but really it's just uh, very simple. Very simply, it's just it's stealing. That's what, that's what it is. 
leaving work early, taking long lunch breaks. When your coworkers are all doing it, they're, all gonna, they're not going to be happy when you start trying to live honestly. Oh, man, they are not going to be happy. But, what, but are we going to be people who uh, live our lives to please men, or are we going to be people who live our lives to please God? Copying a friend's music or movies. Letting someone else use your membership that is supposed to be exclusive to you. Lying in order to close a sale. These are all examples of where it's really easy to ignore our conscience. Because, well, it's just so much more convenient. Sometimes it feels like God's guidelines for our life are very inconvenient, even painfully difficult. But calling Jesus Lord is, be- is believing that he knows what's best for your life. Even though it doesn't feel like it in the moment, we will see in the end that it was, event- it was really for our benefit. Hopefully you've been able to recognize that your conscience, like mine, can become numb to things that we know are wrong. So your conscience probably has some bad programming. Your moral code may be influenced by a self-serving bias. Um, you know, it may be influenced by your culture. It, you might even be numb in a few areas. We cannot trust our conscience as it is to be our guide. Here's what I'd like to propose. We need to look to God himself to be our guide. We cannot look inside ourselves. We cannot look to our culture. We cannot look to some uh, self-help book. We need to look to our maker. How do you make God your guide? Here's three things you need to do. First, you need to acknowledge that God defines morality. If you believe in God, if you believe in any God, he, he, you must acknowledge that that higher power defines morality. God defines the law of nature. He, he, he designed the laws of physics. He, de, he designed the laws of, of molecular biology. He designed all these things, and he also designed the laws of morality. He created them. If he is God, his idea of what's right and wrong is true above all other ideas of what is right and wrong. If he is God. Which means that we need to stop thinking that we can define morality for ourselves. We need to stop saying, well, I, th- I think this is, this is right, so it's going to be right for me. If God defines morality, we need to search for truth about what is right and wrong outside of ourselves. Rather than assuming that we've got it right from the get-go. It's as, a, it's as if a child were, go to, were to go to his daddy and he would say, Daddy, I, I, uh, I think it's all right to steal. And the daddy says, well, no, actually, it's, it's not all right. And then the child were to say, well, well I, I, think it's, I think stealing is all right. So stealing is all right. The dad would say, yeah, that's ridiculous. Who made you the judge of right and wrong? That's ridiculous. However, to say that we don't need God to tell us what's right and wrong is to do the exact same thing. Proverbs 3 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. 
We need to search for God's definition of morality rather than blindly accepting our own. The second thing you need to do is you need to be open to the Holy Spirit's conviction. If you have decided to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God himself, through the Holy Spirit, he's fused himself to you. At times in life, you'll sense his conviction regarding an area of sin, something that he wants to change in you. You have to be open to this. Change is hard. Doing the right thing is hard. But this is what you signed up for when you said, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to be the boss of my life. Even better, ask God to make you aware of your own faults. You can pray like uh, David did in Psalm 139. He prayed, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Ask him, invite him to point out areas of your life where he wants to change you. Ask him. Be open to the Holy Spirit's conviction. The last one is the most important, and that's, that's why I've saved it for last. You need to embrace the Bible as the book from God. Now, you, you may hear things and feel like the Bible's under attack. It may feel like its truthfulness is uh, being undermined. It's important, I think, to remember that this is really nothing new. The Bible has always been under attack. People have always been trying to get rid of it, to, to challenge it, to undermine it. This has always been the way it is. But the Bible has been a book that has stood the test of time. There are countless, countless reasons you can believe that the Bible you hold in your hands is a reliable, faithful representation of actual historical events, the actual voice of God, and that it is absolutely, completely true. Here's one example that I like to reference. For centuries, uh, there, were, there's, there were these scholars who um, would look at the, the book of Daniel, and they would say, you know, this book, it must be a work of fiction. You see, the problem with the book of Daniel was that Daniel mentions this king, Belshazzar. And uh, he mentions it as the last king in Babylon. And Belshazzar, just to give you a frame of reference, he's the guy who saw the handwriting on the wall. So the problem was that nowhere else in antiquity was the name Belshazzar even mentioned. There were, there were no other Belshazzars in antiquity. In fact, ancient historians would keep track of who was king and for how long they were, they were king. And they would keep these lists, long lists of kings. And then we had these two lists of the kings of Babylon, um, and they both agreed with each other. Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. The name Belshazzar was not even on the list. So some people look at these facts and they said, well, whoever wrote the, the book of Daniel, they must have made this stuff up. Surely the Bible is wrong about this. And they, say, they, they said that this proves that Daniel is fictional. This proves it. I mean, you've got two corroborating sources. In 1881, a bunch of archaeologists were digging in the Middle East, and they found this big stone barrel with writing on it. And uh, they called it the Cylinder of Nabonidus because it had a bunch of his uh, accounts from his kingdom, from his reign. And the text on the side of the barrel explained that somewhere in his reign... Um, Nabonidus took a long trip out west. Several years he was gone. And while he was go gone, he appointed his oldest son um, to be king in his place. 
guess what his name was. Belshazzar. And so what, what do you think the scholars say now? They still don't believe it's true. They say this part's true, but that's not true. There are lots and lots of reasons to believe the Bible's claim to being a book from God. And if you're interested in learning more about these things, you know, we, we go through them um, in the Walking with Jesus classes, go into them more in depth. If you want God to be your guide, you need to embrace that the Bible is the book from God. If you haven't got th- gotten there yet, you need to get there. Otherwise, who's to say what's true about God? You know, if, 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 without something that's authoritative, it's just, you know, one guy's opinion up against another guy's opinion. Just a bunch of opinions. Embracing the Bible as the book from God means that you turn to the Bible for guidance on what is right and wrong. You turn to the Bible to, to understand what is important to God and what is not important. And if you do, you'll learn that the, the rules of legalism are really not very important to God. He cares about what's in your heart. And if you read on, you'll also learn that your actions are hands down one of the best indicators of what is going on in your heart. You'll learn how to live well in the midst of suffering. You'll learn how to deal with persecution. You'll, you'll learn how to bring healing to your relationships. You'll learn how to deal with failure, how to have self-control, how to be content, how to have peace in your life, how to be a leader, how to love people who are hard to love. If you're not looking to God for guidance by reading the Bible, you are missing out. You're missing out. The Bible has been such a guide in my own life. And I have found what Psalm 119 says to be very true. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. In dark times, it is certainly that and much more. You can join in our Bible reading. You can find your own Bible reading. Get into the Bible and let it be your guide. Would you stand?